Did you know that there is a road in East Texas near Lake Conroe that has had so many Bigfoot sightings that a length of the Farm to Market Road 1375 has been adopted by the North American Wood Ape Conservancy? Welcome to the Lore of the South. Follow the show on social media to keep up with what's going on and to see pics that go along with each episode. Search for Lore of the South on TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Welcome back to Lore of the South with me, Kelly Cruz, your host. How the heck are y'all doing? I want to thank Rebecca from Texas for that great Did You Know topic. If you run across an article or anything interesting feel free to send it in to lorethesouth at gmail.com. And if I use it, I'll be sure to give you a shout out. Thanks again, Rebecca. Also, I have a correction to make. Y'all, I was way off with normal hemoglobin levels when I was talking about my anemia issues on the last episode. And sorry about that. Think I was confusing iron levels with hemoglobin. Healthy iron is between 40 and 190. Hemoglobin is between 11.7 and 15.5. That being said, I went to my hematology appointment and after the blood transfusion and iron infusion in the hospital, my hemoglobin is up to a nine. So now they will just keep a closer eye on me until we can get all of this to resolve. But even at a nine, I'm still feeling pretty good. Energy is back and I actually feel like doing stuff again and not just sleeping. Moral of this story, do not tune in to Lord of the South for medical advice. Unless you're looking for descriptions of like Civil War style amputations or something like that, then I'm definitely good for that kind of info. But y'all, enough about me. Our two high schoolers who are seniors this year are getting a case of the high school burnout. They are so ready to graduate. Their mama, not so much. Y'all out there with little kids don't blink. Time goes by so fast. I'll have to post a pic of these two goobers from then and now. We just got their senior pics back and their mama's so proud. Now for history making news. This story comes to us from WFAB9. In October of 2022, the Mississippi River was at its lowest since 1992. Patrick Ford, a Mississippi River mudlark, has a hobby. He walks along the banks looking for lost treasures from long ago. On this outing, he walked over a long forgotten riverboat ferry that had sunk in 1915. The little ferry was called the SS Brookhill. During its operation, it carried wagons, livestock, and people back and forth between Port Allen and Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It had a flat deck that stretched across two pontoons. It had a boiler and a paddle wheel to help make its way up and down the river. This was until she was struck by logs while tied up to the North Street dock. The Brookhill sank on September 29, 1915. It is now February and Black History Month, and today's episode is dedicated to it. Welcome to episode 59, Henry Box Brown, the man who shipped himself to freedom. 
Henry Brown was born on a plantation in Louisa County, Virginia, known as the Hermitage, in either 1815 or 1816. The exact date is unknown. He was lucky in the fact that his owner didn't separate his family while he was terribly young. He was raised by both parents. He had four sisters and three brothers. The family was allowed to remain together until the old master, Mr. John Barrett, died. He had also been a former mayor of Richmond, Virginia. John's son, William, inherited the Brown family, and in June of 1830, he leased or rented Henry to a tobacco processing company in Richmond. Y'all may remember back to the story about Mammoth Cave and how those brothers were leased out from another owner to work in the cave system. So this was a pretty common practice back then to lease your property to others, meaning humans, leasing humans to other people to work. His siblings were all split up as well and sold or leased to other plantations. Henry met and married fellow enslaved woman by the name of Nancy in or around 1836. After receiving permission to do so from both his and her masters, the couple joined the First African Baptist Church where Harry sang in the choir every Sunday. Henry was good at his job in the tobacco warehouse and was able to earn a slight wage. He was even able to rent a small place for he and Nancy and their three children they would eventually have together. Even though Nancy and her children were sold several times during their marriage, upon the last time she was sold, Brown came up with the idea to make payments to her new owner, Sam Cottrell, to keep him from selling her and the children off again. Well, Cottrell agreed to this arrangement until he didn't anymore. He broke his word to Henry and sold Nancy, who was pregnant at the time, and their three children off to a plantation somewhere in North Carolina sometime in 1848. Henry never saw any of them again, and historians over the years haven't been able to track them down either. Well, this was it for Henry. This was the last thing that held him in the South, and it had been sold away from him. So he began to plot and plan an escape. Brown made contact with his fellow choir member and free black man by the name of James C.A. Smith and began talking to him in earnest about the possibility of running. James then introduces Henry to a third party, a white man by the name of Samuel A. Smith, a Richmond shoemaker who ran a side hustle as a gambler. The three men met several times before Henry came up with the idea of being shipped by rail to a free state. And y'all, a little interjection here. We're going to use mostly first names because of the guys with the last name Smith, and I don't want to get it confusing. I personally think Sam liked the idea of the gamble of whether or not Henry could make it safely to freedom or not. So he went along with the plan, but for a price. Henry paid Sam $86, which is nearly $3,000 in today's money, out of his life savings of $166. Upon payment, Sam traveled north to Philadelphia. And again, I've got a lot of interjections in this one, throwbacks to other episodes. Y'all may remember in the Oni Judge story that Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 
had some of the best or most lenient laws, or maybe I should say, I should say stringent anti-slavery laws at the time, which meant that that was probably the best place for um, Henry to escape to. So Sam met with the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society, and along with James McKim, William Still, and Cyrus Burley, they hashed out a final plan on how to get Henry Brown out of Richmond. The Anti-Slavery Society arranged for the cargo to be shipped to Passmore Williamson, a Quaker merchant and an abolitionist. Once back in Richmond, Sam passes this info back to Henry and James. They have a plan, and it could work. But how did they get Henry out of work for long enough that he wouldn't be missed and had time to escape? What did Henry Brown do, y'all? He poured a vial of sulfuric acid onto one of his hands. The highly caustic liquid ate and burned its way through Henry's skin and muscle all the way to the bone. And he did this just before entering his three foot long, two and a half foot wide shipping container with one hole cut in the side for fresh air. Oh, and they had also lined it with a coarse woolen cloth for his comfort. His co-conspirators sealed Henry in his box with both nails and straps and stamped it with a dry goods seal and a message to handle with care. All of this was done on March 29th 1849. Henry Brown was then transported inside his box with only a small ration of water and a handful of crackers to tide him over. He then went by wagon, railroad, steamboat, wagon, railroad, ferry, railroad, and then finally delivered by wagon to Quaker Williamson's business address. Henry arrived on March 30, 1849, about 27 hours after being sealed into his shipping crate. Now y'all, today, that trip could be as little as a four-hour drive. The two cities, Richmond and Philadelphia, are about 250 miles apart. But back in the 1840s, 27 hours would have been super fast back then especially when you consider it took seven different modes of transportation to get him to Philadelphia. But I digress. At a couple of points during the shipping, Henry and his crate ended up upside down. He'd spend what seemed like hours to him this way and described the extreme discomfort, heck, torture thusly. I was resolved to conquer or die. I felt my eyes swelling as they would burst from their sockets, and the veins in my temples were dreadfully distended with the pressure of blood upon my head. Then he heard two men talking in a cargo hold about how tired of standing they were. So this is Henry again. So perceiving my box was standing on end, they threw it down, then sat upon it. I was thus relieved from my state of agony, which may be more easily imagined than described. I think he did a pretty good job of describing his eyeballs bulging out of his head and veins popping, but he made it. Upon being lifted from the box, Henry 
promptly passed out. Once revived, he recited Psalm 40 and greeted his liberators from his torturous captivity. How do you gentlemen do? Word spread to the South quickly, and slave-holding Southerners became concerned that more slaves would try to mail themselves to freedom. In fact, Frederick Douglass was quoted as to saying, As long as federal and state government respected the privacy of the mail, everyone and anyone could mail letters and packages with almost anything inside. Once Henry had gained his freedom in the North, he began touring and giving speeches about the evils of slavery and about his own escape. He'd sing the psalm that he sang once he'd been freed from the crate. He even sold a little song book of it after his appearances. Y'all, Henry had merch. (laughs) It was also about this time that Henry gave himself the nickname Henry Box Brown, which the crowds loved. But Frederick Douglass, not so much. He felt that Brown should have kept some of the details of his escape secret because it could possibly allow for more slaves to have escaped. But Brown toured all through Philadelphia and Boston, telling and retelling his story, even publishing a memoir with the help of Charles Stearns, entitled, and y'all get ready for this, they loved a long title back in the day, Narrative of Henry Box Brown Who Escaped from Slavery Enclosed in a Box Three Feet Long, Two Feet Wide, written from a statement of facts made by himself, with remarks upon the remedy for slavery by Charles Stearns, 1849. Meanwhile, back in Richmond, Henry's friend from church, James C.A. Smith, and shoemaker Sam Smith were trying to make another shipment of contraband to the north when they were intercepted by authorities on May 8, 1849. Sam Smith was found guilty and sentenced to six and a half years. James managed to avoid arrest until September 25th. The panel of magistrates overseeing James's case couldn't come to a decision, and this somehow allowed for James to avoid prison or possibly even the noose. James quickly made his way north to Boston, where he joined Henry Box Brown on his tour. The two put together what was known as a panorama show. Um, A panorama show was created by painting a continuous scene across a roll or multiple panels of canvas. In many cases, they would be pastoral scenes. But in the case of Brown and Smith's panorama, It was meant to be a lesson. Their panorama was called Henry Box Brown's Mirror of Slavery. There were no peaceful country scenes here, just depictions of the treatment of slaves in the South, and it brought in some of the top names of the abolitionist movement to watch. Then, in 1850, came the passing of the Fugitive Slave Act. With its passing, it allowed slave hunters from slaveholding states to cross into non-slaveholding states and arrest and return runaway slaves. This is what convinced both Henry and James that it was not safe anywhere in the U.S. for black people. The two packed up their panorama show and Henry's shipping container and headed to England. There they continued their panorama and showed the English what was happening in their former colonies even though we all know they're the ones that started it. 
and in the show, they were sharing Henry's remarkable escape. Until 1851, when Henry Box Brown decided to ditch the abolitionist circuit and become an actor. He and James went their separate ways. James was also said to take exception to the fact that Henry never made an effort to find and buy his family's freedom. It was also in 1851 that Henry published his outline on how to end slavery. Though it was mentioned before in his memoir that was published in 1949. So I kind of question this bit of information. But his outline were these three points. Number one, penalize the South. In other words, penalize or fine slaveholders for owning humans. Number two, elect a new president. The president of the time was Millard Fillmore. Y'all, I couldn't even tell you what Millard Fillmore was known for. So probably not a bad idea to get a new president in there. And number three, give the enslaved the right to vote. He believed if every man were allowed to vote that slaves in the South would vote to make slavery illegal. Y'all, if only it were that easy or humans were so sensible. As we know, there is a long war and a hundred years of fighting to try to get any kind of equality. So as I was saying before, Henry went into acting. He first played himself in a play written about him and his escape to freedom. He traveled all over England portraying himself and he would burst from his shipping crate onto the stage. It was probably at one of these performances that he met his wife, an actress from Cornwall named Jane Floyd. The two were married sometime in 1855. From here, Henry became active in the circus. He rebranded himself as a mesmerist, what we would call a hypnotist today, and renamed himself Professor H. Box Brown, the African Prince. He did performances with his wife and then his wife and daughter, Annie, when she came along. They performed all over England from the 1860s to 1875. It was in 1875 that Henry Box Brown and family made its return to the U.S. The family titled themselves the Brown Family Jubilee Singers. They could be seen touring the Northeast U.S. until May 9th of 1879 when a playbill shows Professor H. Box Brown would be performing in Toronto. Another handbill found shows a performance scheduled for February 26, 1889, 10 years later, in Brantford, Ontario. And it's here in this city, Henry Box Brown is buried in the Necropolis Cemetery. He passed away on June 15, 1897. He would have been 81 or 82 years old. Side notes, y'all, what a life. And I do have a couple little things here to add. Brown had a second biography published while in England. Also, y'all, I was going back and forth between a couple of sources and sometimes things would differ by a year or so. I did my best to keep all the dates straight for y'all. So hopefully 
I won't have any corrections to make on the next podcast. But y'all, if y'all ever see that I've gotten something wrong or hear that I've gotten something wrong, y'all let me know so that I can make a correction. And also, Quakers. I just need to do an episode about Quakers. I know most of them were in the North. Maybe I'll do that on a Patreon podcast. But if this country had been settled by Quakers instead of Puritans or businesses, we would have been so much better off. They are peaceful. They are anti-slavery. They let women speak. A lot of them were even doctors. So yeah, Quakers, good people. We should all try to be more like them. And one last little note here. What the heck about Henry's hand? Dude burned it to the bone and it's never mentioned again. In all of the reading that I did about him, and even a couple of videos I watched about his life. They never talk about what the final outcome was with that poor man's hand. Burned to the bone, y'all. How about a recommendation, y'all? I haven't done one in a while. You can find this show on Netflix and YouTube. It's called Kunk on Earth. And y'all, it is hilarious. If you like like the sarcasm style of like The Daily Show or something like that, I mean, like, I just sit and watch it and laugh. It is hilarious. I don't know how she keeps, the comedian keeps a straight face while she's going over this. And a lot of the information is actually viable and correct information just thrown in with a lot of humor and sarcasm. So check out Kunk on Earth on Netflix and YouTube. And there's also a series, Kunk on Britain or Kunk on England that you can find on YouTube and the whole series is there and y'all I'm telling y'all they are hilarious if y'all watch them let me know what you think and I hope y'all enjoyed this story of Henry Box Brown I will never doubt his bravery now how about our oldest buildings in the U.S. brought to us by the Discoverer blog where are we today Hawaii and Idaho Now there's a contrast. The oldest building in Hawaii took the long way around to get there. In 1820, the rough timbers were shipped from Maine to Boston to be milled and cut to size. Then they were loaded onto a ship and made the voyage around the Horn into the Pacific. The lumber arrived in the islands eight months later and became a mission house, which is now maintained as a museum. Idaho's oldest building is also a mission, but it was one built by the Catholic Jesuits, sent to convert the Native Americans in the early 1840s. Then, in 1850, Brother Antonio Rivali came and finished the project. He built the mission from a wattle and daub, just like they did in the medieval times. The result was beautiful, and the mission is now part of a state park. Thank y'all for joining us for our Black History episode. I hope y'all enjoyed it. If you did, please consider leaving us a five-star review and a few kind words. If you really liked it, consider taking a peek at our Patreon. I'm sure producer Mike will post another outtake of the latest one where we discuss David Platy's Missing 411 here for y'all. And you can get one extra episode a month for as little as $3 per month. On the Patreons, producer Mike discuss different topics, and it's just us having fun. 
and we're just starting to get warmed up to being on the mic together. So it gets a bit out of left field at times, but I laugh at us, so I hope y'all do too. All right, y'all, I'm starting to ramble. If you want a t-shirt or to get in touch, like Rebecca did with her Bigfoot spotting story, email us at laurathesouth at gmail.com. Follow us on social media, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook. I post pictures to go along with almost every single episode and post updates about what's going on with the show. And with that, we'll talk to y'all later on Laura the South. Stay tuned for a preview of our latest Patreon episode. If Bigfoot is, why is he going to be put in the most remote places on the planet? Like, because he's Bigfoot and we're not supposed to know about him. Of course, he's going to be like, we want to be he's remote. Somebody, and he's their pet? He's Alien's pet. Are you sure? <laughs> but look at him. Um, what's his name? You're that show that Chewbacca. What's a Chewbacca? Chewbacca's a Bigfoot, right? <laughs> I guess. He's an alien Bigfoot. I gotcha. He's an alien Bigfoot. So apparently George Lucas believes in space Bigfoot because he made Chewbacca. If you loved what you heard, check out the Patreon page for exclusive content by searching for The Lore of the South on Patreon.com.